Hello, I'm Philip. And I'm Phoebe. Welcome to Dad. And Daughter, Do You Death. Hi, Phoebe. Hi, Dad. How are you? I'm fine. I'm fine. Sweltering a bit in this uh, late summer heat wave we've had over the last few days. Where is autumn? (laughs) (laughs) This isn't jumper weather. This isn't boots weather. Yeah, I I still think autumn starts. uh, (laughs) I still think autumn starts 21st, 22nd of September. Yeah, with the the equinox. (laughs) Mm. Give it a couple more weeks and then. uh, I'm, uh, I'm not happy to changing. still be in shorts. I'm not going to lie to you. I uh, wish I was. <laughs> so hot. So too hot. <laughs> yeah. yeah. The dog has definitely been suffering in the heat. Bless him. Well, it's supposed to all change tonight. Rain everywhere. So that will cool good. it down. So. Good. <laughs> yeah. Other than that, how are you? Yeah. All good. Thank you. Just, yeah. I'm excited. I bought a new duvet and everything ready for the autumn and I can't use it because it's just, it's just too warm. So... <laughs> Oh, it'll get its use, I think. Well, yeah. So, anything in the uh, in the world of true crime this week, Phoebe? Um, a few things have caught my attention. Um, obviously, the Claudia Lawrence search came to an end, and they didn't find anything of note. Um, they said they'd retrieved a few bits, and that they'd had some people come forward with some new bits of information, but nothing really came from it. So, that's a shame that yeah. there's no real kind of new news come from there. Um, another piece of news that I thought was quite interesting this week is um, the man who has been charged with murdering his pregnant new wife because she fell off Arthur's seat in Edinburgh. Um, Mm. Apparently the two were on their honeymoon when she fell and he was arrested and charged with murder and he has been remanded in custody. So that'd be interesting one to follow. Not so much fell, more pushed. I mean, that's what I'd read from that or tripped, Mm. (laughs) but it looks like, yeah, I don't think it was an accident. It, was it seems to be what the police uh, think. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Yeah. And another piece of news that um, shocked me yesterday when I heard it also in Scotland was that the Scottish police force have been fined a huge amount of money because they were told about a car crash that had happened and they didn't investigate it for 72 hours. And when oh, they got there, awful. there was two people in the car one of them had died and the lady died a few days later and they said that if Incredible. they'd have gone straight away that she'd have probably been saved Incredible. horrific yeah absolutely yeah. horrific it's a few years ago now wasn't it yeah but, uh, yeah it'd been reported by a farmer i think yeah it? and um yeah no one came the like why didn't they go and she was still alive for all that time yeah just stuck there oh my god waiting for somebody to find her Oh, yeah. horrific. Absolutely horrific. Very sad. Really sad. Um, and just awful that the police can do that. They probably won't do that again. Well, hopefully not. Hopefully some lessons have been learned. So what have you got for me this episode, Phoebe? So today I'm going to be telling you about Dr. Hawley Harvey Crippen. Um, who I think is is quite famous. I've not heard of him, but then he's got a statue at Madame Tussauds and he seems quite infamous. So um, it's a really interesting story and it actually starts in America. Um, And it involves some transatlantic travel, but uh, very firmly ends (laughs) in England. 
So Dr. Hawley Harvey Crippen was born in Coldwater, Michigan on the 11th of September, 1862. I didn't know that. I didn't know he was American. Mm, yeah, he was. <laughs> I've heard of Crippen, but I just thought he was English. Okay. No, he was American and he was born to Andressa Skinner and Myron Augustus Crippen. Um, so to me, that sounds like they're maybe like second or third generation immigrants, but I couldn't really find a lot of um, information about that. He studied at first at the University of Michigan in the homeopathic medical school, and he came to England for a time in the 1880s to improve his medical knowledge. Um, and then he graduated from Cleveland Homeopathic Medical College in 1884. So a lot of back and forth. Ooh, he did, didn't he? Yeah. <laughs> in 1885, he acquired another diploma as an eye and ear specialist from the Ophthalmic Hospital in New York. So he married a lady called Charlotte Bell in 1887 in San Diego, and they had a son who they called Otto. Sadly, Charlotte died of a stroke while they were living in Utah because they moved around quite a lot in 1891. And it was actually a stroke. There was no kind of sign of foul play at all. (laughs) Um, And so Hawley sent his son Otto, who was now three, to go and live with Charlotte's parents in California. I mean, it's believed that he didn't really have any other contact with his son after that, Um, which seems sad because surely he could So after his wife's death, Crippen moved to New York, where he quickly found work as a homeopath. Um, And in 1894, he met and married his second wife, who was 17-year-old Corinne Cora Turner. Um, And she performed under the stage name of Belle Elmore because she was an aspiring opera singer. Um, But her birth name was Kunigunda Makamotsky. So you can see why she changed it, I think. Yeah, okay. Uh, she was born to a German mother and a Polish-Russian father. So hence the um, quite European name. <laughs> yes, Eastern European name. Yeah. Uh, by all accounts, she was very loud, very outgoing and very flirtatious, um, but apparently not very talented. Um, she really had these dreams of becoming an opera star and she just didn't really have the voice for it. She wasn't really cut out for it. A bit like Florence Foster Jenkins. Yeah, I think so. That sort of thing. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So in 1897, Crippen moved to England, finally, yeah, with his back wife. Again. Back again. And this is where they settled, apart from a kind of little bit of time where he had to go to Philadelphia. Um, but apart from that, he he lived the rest of his life in England. But his medical qualifications weren't enough to let him practice as a doctor in the UK. He couldn't really transfer it across. So he worked as a distributor of patent medicines for a pharmaceutical company called Munions. And Cora spent most of her time socialising with a number of kind of high profile people, including Lil Hawthorne of the Hawthorne Sisters and her husband slash manager, John Nash. Around this time as well, Cora started working in some music halls because she found that she could get work there basically she was more suited to that than she was to a life in the opera opera. (laughs) however she even found that work harder and harder to get as critics just didn't really like her um with one calling her the brooklyn matzo ball which i think is probably not the most flattering of things to call somebody (laughs) i guess referring to her as like an american dumpling so Uh, nice okay Mm. yeah 
So in 1899, Crippen was sacked from his job, basically, for spending too much time managing his wife's stage career. (laughs) But instead, he went to get a job um, working at Juritz Institution for the Deaf, because obviously he'd trained in eyes and ears. Um, And while he was there, he hired Ethel Leneve to be his secretary. And she was a young typist. And... Not very surprisingly, by 1905, the two of them were having an affair. Um, around this sort of time as well, Cora had been having a variety of affairs with other people from the music halls. And I think it wasn't necessarily an open marriage, but they both kind of acknowledged that they were both having affairs. And that's just how it was. So, so um, what so. sort of age was Hawley uh, Crippin by this stage? He was in his 30s. Okay. Late yeah, he's born in 62, so he was like late 30s, early 40s. Yeah, okay. So after living at various addresses in London, the Crippins finally moved um, in 1905 to 39 Hilldrop Crescent, which was on Camden Road in Holloway, London. So, you yeah, know, a nice area of London. And the rent cost them quite a lot of money. So they took in some lodgers to try and augment Crippin's meagre income and Cora's almost non-existent income because she just wasn't <laughs> yeah. getting any work. <laughs> Okay. And he was earning about three pounds a week. So they bought in these lodges because they like to live quite a high quality sort of life. Cora enjoyed wearing jewels and furs and things like that. Unfortunately, the amount of money that, that Criffin was bringing in just wasn't really covering it. So Cora started having an affair with one of these lodges. Um, and in turn, Crippen took Ethel Leneve as his official mistress in mm-hmm. 1908. However, Cora and Hawley still maintained the presence as a happily married couple and regularly held dinner parties for their friends together. So on the 31st of January 1910, Crippen and Cora hosted a party at their home for their friends, Paul and Clara Martinetti. At the party, there was a slight issue in that Paul asked to use the bathroom and instead of escorting him to the bathroom, Hawley just told him where it was or just said, yeah, go and help yourself. And Cora was completely beside herself in rage at his lack of etiquette about this. Now, apparently she could be quite um, temperamental and get really upset about insignificant things. And and Paul and Clara were good friends of theirs. They'd been around a lot. Um, Crippen was quite surprised (laughs) as to how angry she'd got that he just said, yeah, help yourself to the bathroom. Um, but she said that it and, and she told him quite openly at the dinner table how awful she thought his behaviour was. But after they'd kind of settled down after that, they played some games of whist and the Martinettis left at about half past one in the morning. Did she stop out? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and that was the last that anybody saw of Cora. Really? So the next day on the 1st of February, 1910, Crippen pawned a diamond ring and some earrings for £80. And and that night, Ethel Leneve slept at their house uh, in Hilldrop Crescent. On the 3rd of February 1910, two letters signed Bell Elmore, so Cora's stage name, and dated the 2nd of February 1910, were received by the Secretary of the Music Hall Ladies Guild, saying that Cora had resigned from her position as honorary treasurer as she had been summoned to the USA as one of her relatives had been taken seriously ill. But the letters were not in Cora's handwriting. <laughs> and Mrs. Martinetti, so Clara, who'd been at their party on the on the 31st, called on Crippin later that day and said, why didn't you tell me that she was going away? Like, I wanted to come and say goodbye yeah. to her. So why didn't you, t- you know, we were there the night before. Why didn't you tell us that she was going away? 
And he said that, oh, she'd got a really sudden telegram the morning of and had to pack and just leave straight away. Okay. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So Crippen then pawned more rings and a brooch for £115. So for anyone that he was earning £3 a week. That's a lot of money. <laughs> this is quite a lot of money. <laughs> On the 20th of February, 1910, so Cora had been missing for nearly three weeks, um, Crippen took Ethel Leneve to the ball of the Music Hall Ladies Benevolent Fund, which was the organisation that Cora was involved with. And it was noticed that Leneve was clearly wearing a brooch, which was known to belong to Cora. Oh. On the 12th of March, 1910, Ethel Leneve moved permanently into 39 Hilldrop Crescent. And shortly after that, Crippen gave his landlords three months notice of his intention to leave the house. So just before Easter 1910, Crippen told Clara Martinetti, the friends who'd been for the dinner party and the friends who were sad that she just disappeared, yep, um, yep. that Cora had been taken seriously ill while she'd been in the USA. Oh, OK. Um, and that actually she was not expected to live. Oh, no. Um, so it was quite the shock. They're all upset about it. Yeah. And Crippen said that if she died, that he was going to take a week's holiday in France to kind of get himself together after the sad death so he was preparing himself for that so not the... go to america for her funeral or uh, no um, okay it's a long way but that doesn't seem to really bother him that much from hopping back and forward <laughs> earlier in the story does it so on the 24th of march 1910 the day before good friday a telegram arrived for clara martinetti to say bell died yesterday at 6 p.m it had been sent from London's Victoria Rail Station, just as Crippen and Leneve were setting off for Dieppe. Crippen okay. also wrote to several other friends on paper with black edging to tell them that Cora had died of pneumonia whilst visiting family in California, which was very sad. During his absence in France, so whilst he was on his kind of bereavement trip to France, Cora's friends had a great deal of discussions about her sudden trip to the USA and her mm-hmm. death. When he returned from France, Crippen made several attempts to stop them from trying to send anything over to France, so any kind of tokens of remembrance. He said that she died in Los Angeles and her ashes were returning to England and that gifts that were going to the USA would arrive too late. So keep them over here. And you know, when we when we lay her ashes to rest, we can you can bring your tokens then. Okay. Everything was very neatly explained. Mm-hmm. And when Crippen went about his normal business. Ethel and Eve was, start, was seen wearing more of Cora's furs and jewellery, which was regarded as being in poor taste because she yeah. literally just died. <laughs> um, and the fact that, you know, she'd kind of gone away, he'd moved her into the house, she was wearing her clothes. A friend of Cora, Mr Nash, who, if you remember, was Lil Hawthorne's uh, husband, who she was kind of socialising with a lot when she first came to England he was popping over to the States um, and whilst he was there he kind of made some inquiries about her but he couldn't find her Um, when he came back to London he went and spoke to Crippen and said where is she you know I've been over there in the places that you said she were and in the place that you said she was and I couldn't find her Um, and nobody knew where she was Yeah. Um, and because Crippen couldn't really give many answers. He went to Scotland Yard and told them his story and said, this friend that I've got has disappeared. She was supposed to go to America. I've been over to America. Nobody knows anything about it. 
around the same sort of time, Cora's friend Kate Williams, also known as the strong woman Volcana, also from Music Hall, I'm assuming, <laughs> um, <laughs> spoke to the police about the strange way in which she'd just gone. And the yes. fact that she just, you know, kind of up and gone literally one day, hadn't said goodbye to anybody, which is really not like her. Not her character. Yeah. So a week after Mr. Nash visited Scotland Yard, Chief Inspector Walter Jew popped in to see uh, Mr. Crippen at his workplace, which was in Albion House. And then when he got there, Crippen admitted that he had been lying about his wife's death. Oh. He believed that she was still alive and that she had run away and gone to Chicago so that she could be with her friend of her early musical days, a man called Bruce Miller. Um, And his lies were to shield her and himself from any scandal that would result from her elopement. So he said that she died so that she could go and live her life with somebody else new. He could get on with his life without there being a scandal. Oh, okay, Could be. Yeah, could be. Walter Jew then obtained a search warrant and visited Hilldrop Crescent, accompanied by Mr. Crippen, and did a real thorough search of the house. But he found nothing. Mm -hmm. There was nothing there to kind of incriminate him at all. And he was satisfied at his explanation regarding his disappearance. He said, you know what? Maybe it makes sense. But they said, actually, let's put some messages in some papers in Chicago and just say, you know, if you're okay, can you just drop us a message to let us know that you're alive basically just so we can we can close the book on this once and for all and as far as walter g was concerned that was it that was Mm -hmm. the end of it yeah job done she's obviously just taken herself back off to america there was no evidence to say that something had happened so there you go however Mm -hmm. crippen and leneve were spooked by this and they thought they were under suspicion and they didn't believe that it was over So they fled in a panic to Brussels, where they spent the night at a hotel. And the following day, they went to Antwerp and boarded the Canadian Pacific liner SS Montrose for Canada. So whereas the police didn't really think there was an issue before, (laughs) their disappearance led the police um, to start being really suspicious of them. Why would they flee? What do they have to hide? So they performed another three searches of the house. Three. Wow. So four in total. And during the fourth and final search, they found the torso of a human body buried under the brick floor of the basement. Oh, really? The kind of scientific analyst to the Home Office found traces of the calming drug scopolamine in the torso parts. Mm-hmm. And the corpse was identified by a piece of skin from its abdomen. The head, limbs and skeleton were never recovered and... These remains, which were thought to be Cora's, were later interned at St Pancras and Islington Cemetery. So the kind of medical examiner at the time, or coroner, he it was his first real case. Oh, and okay. from his um, notes, he said, human remains found 13th of July. So February, March, April, May, six months really after she kind of yeah. got missing. Medical organs of chest and abdomen removed in one mass, four large pieces of skin and muscle, one from lower abdomen with old operation scar, four inches long, broader at lower end, impossible to identify sex, hyacine, which is another name for scopolamine, it's easy Mm -hmm. to say, found 2.7 grains, hair in hinders curler, roots present, hair six inches long, man's pyjama jacket label reads Joan Brothers, Holloway, an odd pair of pyjama trousers. 
There was no head and all the limbs were missing and no bones except for what appeared to be part of a human thigh. And obviously one of the pieces had this scar, which was the only real kind of identifying feature in 1910. There was no way for them to DNA DNA. test it to work out (laughs) who it was. All they had to go on was the fact that it looked like it could have been a woman's body. There was some blonde hair that was found in this curler and she had blonde, like dyed blonde hair. So that was it. That was all they had. There clearly wasn't very much left of her. No. But I guess it opens up the questions about where did the rest of her go? Yeah. <laughs> like their head and arms and legs, you know, those kind of identifying features. And if they could have got rid of those bits, why couldn't they get rid of the other bits? Would be my question. Mm. But we can talk about that in a bit. Okay. <laughs> so at this time, when they found this body in the cellar, Crippen and Ethel and Eve were crossing the Atlantic on the Montrose in first class, because why not? He just sold all their jewellery, so they had all this money to spend on first class tickets. And obviously in first class, they were mixing with the captain regularly, you know, yep. just kind of spending time with him. Now they decided that it would be a good idea um, for them to change their appearance. So um, oh. Crippen, um, he shaved his, uh, he had quite a distinctive moustache, so he shaved that and he started growing a beard. And they decided that Ethel and Eve would be disguised as a boy and that they would travel as father and son so that people wouldn't suspect, you know, kind of lovers escaping, basically. Oh, okay. Which seems like an interesting thing to do. After ah. spending some time together, the captain, Henry George Kendall, recognised them. He commented that he saw them hold hands a couple of times and that Crippen was like sharing his salad with Leneve. And he was like, that's just not how two men act with each other. Um, and around this time, telegram had started to be used on boats and news was being sent out to the boats as they were going. Um, and they had found out about this news, about this body that had been found in the cellar and these kind of fugitives, essentially, who were on the run. So just before they kind of got out of the range of the transmitter, they sent a message back to the British authorities via telegram to say, have strong suspicions that Crippen, London seller, murderer and accomplice are among saloon passengers. Mustache taken off, growing beard. Accomplice dressed as boy. Manner and build, undoubtedly a girl. That would have taken ages to punch out via Morse code, wouldn't it? (laughs) That's that's quite a message. If they'd have travelled in third class, they probably wouldn't have been noticed because they wouldn't have been noticed yeah, by the captain and nobody else had really noticed them yeah they set themselves so up really they set they? themselves and, up absolutely yeah, and the and... fact that like, if she hadn't addressed up as a boy then they wouldn't have probably aroused so much suspicion and then it was yeah did they like enter, did, did they board the ship with that disguise or did yeah. she transform sort of on the voyage no that's how <laughs> they got on the ship right okay basically so learning about this Chief Inspector Walter Jew boarded a faster White Star liner, the SS Laurentic from Liverpool, and he arrived in Quebec ahead of Crippen and contacted the Canadian authorities. As the Montrose entered the St. Lawrence River, Jew came aboard disguised as a pilot. (laughs) Um, And obviously, as then Canada was then within the British Empire. And if they'd gone into America instead, because he was an American citizen, there'd have been a massive extradition process yeah, to kind yeah. of get him back. But because they'd gone to Canada, it was fair game. So Kendall invited Crippen to meet the pilots as they came aboard. 
and Jew removed his pilot's cap and said, Good morning, Dr. Crippen. Do you know me? I'm Chief Inspector Jew from Scotland Yard. And after a pause, Crippen replied, Thank God it's over. The suspense has been too great. I couldn't stand yeah. it any longer. Sounds quite confessional to me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he then held out his wrists for the handcuffs and Crippen and Lenny were arrested on board the Montrose on the 31st of July, 1910. Wow. And Crippen was returned back to England on board the SS Megantic, which okay. I assume was a uh, predecessor for the Titanic. <laughs> was it White Star? It was a White Star, yes. Yeah. So Crippen's trial took place at the Old Bailey and started on the 18th of October 1910. And the proceedings only lasted for four days. The first prosecution witnesses were the pathologists, who was uh, Bernard Spilsbury, who was the person who made the notes, who was his first case. And he said that he couldn't identify the torso remains or even actually discern whether they were male or female. However, he was the one who kind of found the skin with the scar on, consistent with Cora's medical history. And large quantities of the toxic compound of scopalamine, which is also hyacine, were found in the remains. And they had proof that Crippen had bought that drug before the murder from a local chemist. Ah, okay. But so scopalamine was used as as an anaesthetic, really, was was one of its uses at this sort of time, especially during childbirth or surgery. Um, And using morphine, it could knock somebody out for like 24 hours. But I think more recently or more commonly, it was used as a remedy for motion sickness. So it was kind of an over-the-counter thing that you could get hold of. It wasn't like it was arsenic or something like that that clearly had like a motive (laughs) behind it. It was something that could be used um, for another purpose. Innocently, yeah. Yeah. And they also talked with um, Cora's friends around how fast she disappeared and how unlike her it was. Um, so that was kind of the prosecution's case, but the, the defense maintained that she fled to America with another man, um, and that they'd only been living in the house since 1905, and that actually the previous owner was responsible for the remains because of how decomposed they were. And the defense oh. said that the abdominal scar was really just folded tissue because it had hair follicles growing from it, something that scar tissue couldn't have. But the kind of counter to that was that they said, well, there the, was the kind of hair sebaceous glands were at the ends, but not in the middle of the skull. Right. Um, and other evidence presented by the prosecution was that a piece of the kind of pajama, supposedly from a pair Cora had given Crippen a year earlier, um, and the pajama bottoms were found in Crippen's bedroom, but not the top, and the the top matched the bottoms that were in the yep. bedroom and the fragment included the manufacturer's label which was jones brothers yeah and they got in touch with him and said that actually yeah that top was from them and it came from a product that wasn't sold before 1908 placing the kind of, right. of manufacture within that time period of when they lived in the house so yep destroying the, it could have been 1905 yeah. and earlier and also the remains were still as intact as they were. So they probably weren't older than than five years old. Um, that's and what the said, defense are trying to uh, Yeah, the, it must have been <laughs> somebody else left a body behind. It wasn't them. <laughs> but they were trying to say that these remains were at least five years old. Yeah, and that they they'd been okay. left behind by somebody else. And they'd said that curlers and the bleached hair consistent with Cora's were found with the remains and that it was more than likely her. So throughout the proceedings and his and the sentencing, 
Crippen showed no sort of remorse for his wife. His biggest concern was making sure that Ethel and Eve could keep her reputation. And the jury found him guilty of murder after just 27 minutes of deliberation. Okay. Um, So not a long time of talking. And Leneve was charged only with being an accessory after the fact, and she was completely acquitted. And there's pictures from the courtroom of him and Ethel and even the doc together, which are quite interesting to see. And I'll I'll post them on our Instagram page so you can see them. Interesting. Yeah. So although Crippen never really gave any reason for killing her, several theories were kind of brought forward. Yeah. One was that he was using the hyacine, so the scorpulpamine, on her as a depressant or an anaphrodisiac, um, but accidentally gave her an overdose and then panicked when she died and then decided to hide part of her body in the cellar. Right. Um, And in 1981, several British newspapers reported that Sir Hugh Rees Rankin claimed to have met Ethel and Eve in 1930 in Australia, where she told him that Crippen murdered his wife because she had syphilis, which is interesting. I mean, there was definitely no sort of financial motive behind it. And oh, no, they had no money. Apart from no selling money. her jewels. Apart from selling her jewels. Things. <laughs> um, I guess the thing that I think about is how quickly he moved his mistress into the yeah. house. So was it get rid of her so that she could move in? So, but she was yeah. already his mistress. She was already so. the mistress, and they were already having that kind of relationship. So it's not like it was all totally clandestine, was it? Because she was off having affairs as well. So, yeah. yeah. So mm. Crippen was hanged by John Ellis at Pentonville Prison in London at 9 a.m. on Wednesday, the 23rd of November, 1910. So about five weeks after the trial. <laughs> so not very long for appeals or things like that. Which oh, this seems to be ringing some bells. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Pentonville, 9 a.m. Yes, so yep. quick. Really so quick. quick. Trial came on really quickly. The trial yep. didn't last very long. Four the days, jury, 27 the, minutes. The five jury, weeks later, yeah. Uh, yeah, sentenced to death. That's it. You're gone. Yeah. yeah. Wow. I mean, it's a way to keep the prisons like emptier, isn't it? <laughs> well, it is. Yeah, the evidence doesn't sound. I know that's what I think. Um, there could be doubt. Yeah, I think. I, I think definitely, if it was, yeah, job better. <laughs> and that's the defense's job, isn't it? Yeah. To make Introduce the jury doubt. doubt. Yeah, um, and that's that's how OJ got off, really, isn't it? Because the defense yeah. presented so much doubt. And puts that they couldn't say, yeah, we can convince you because we've had so much doubt put into our minds. Yeah. And yeah, they, they didn't do that. So <laughs> I feel like there probably could have been grounds for appeal. And but it seemed like he didn't really kind of fight for it. So maybe he didn't wow. know what he did. Huh? So the morning that he was hanged, Ethel and Eve sailed to the United States before settling in Canada and finding work as a typist. She returned to England in 1915. And she married a clerk called Stanley Smith. And then they settled in Croydon and had several children together. And she died in 1967, aged 84. Um, So she lived a a long and happy life, essentially. Um, At Crippen's request, a photograph of her was placed in his coffin and buried with him. Not a photo of his wife. (laughs) Just pointing that out. Crippen's grave is obviously in Pentonville's grounds yep. because he was a prisoner. And it's not marked by a stone, but tradition has it that soon after his burial, a rose bush was planted over it. And recently, some of his relatives in Michigan have begun lobbying for his remains to be repatriated to the United States, 
which is interesting. And the house that they lived at on Hilldrop Crescent, um, which was once the most famous house in London, it was destroyed along with the surrounding houses by German air raids in World War II. Okay. But the story doesn't quite end there. <laughs> oh, as I say, when my bodies fell, when the bombs fell on the uh, houses. <laughs> no, they didn't. <laughs> no, well, not that's reported. No. Okay. Um, but there's been some real questions around his guilt. And okay. actually, did he do it? Uh, there was something to do with the fact that the judge was shady about letting the defence see the affidavit and things like that. So there was some sort of question around why wasn't that disclosed? They said that although the, the, the torso was put in dry quick lime, it wasn't realised that when it became wet, it turned into a different sort of lime, which was actually a preservative. The British crime novelist Raymond Chandler thought it unbelievable, which is something I mentioned earlier, that he would be so stupid as to bury the torso under the cellar of his home, but successfully disposing of her head and limbs. Mm -hmm. So he managed to get rid of the rest of her. Why didn't he get rid of all of her? Why would he keep some of her in the house? Which does seem like a weird thing to do. And another theory, which I think is very interesting, is that he was actually carrying out illegal abortions. And the torso was that of one of his patients who died and not okay. his wife. Right. Because they were never able to actually prove that it was her. Like, yeah, no. okay, there was some blonde hair in a curler and she had a scar on her tummy, but that could have literally been anybody. And there's sort of kind of drugs that he was used that were used like in kind of childbirth and as an anesthesia. Was yep. that something that he was doing? Was he kind of basically performing these underground abortions, something went wrong and it was mm-hmm, mm-hmm. just the body of somebody else. And did she really just disappear or go back to America? Or did something else happen to her? Well, I suppose, I mean, the, the fact that people tried to contact her and that other guy went over to America and made to... I mean, America's a big place. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> even, in, even in 1910, it was a big place. Um, yes um, I think that he went to you know places that she was known to have been so kind of at one point I think he said that he'd gone she'd she was staying with his son Otto over in California and so he'd like been in touch with his son and said oh have you heard from your stepmom and he was like okay so I don't think he was just like wandering around America saying like hey have you seen this girl (laughs) I think it was more kind of targeted than that I'm assuming that they if you know if they did put notices in the paper in uh, Chicago Chicago. that came forward so mm, in, she, she does seem to have disappeared then, doesn't she? She did quite disappear, but yeah. uh, like it, you say, it, America's it, a big country, isn't it? And she, it, think of all the different names that she had. She could literally just gone and yeah. change her name and just gone, done. Yeah. You know, if she was done good. with her husband, maybe she did go. Maybe she just had enough and she decided to go. Or maybe she was dead. Not conclusive, is it? No, absolutely not. Well, in October 2007, forensic scientist from Michigan State University claimed that mitochondrial DNA evidence showed that the remains found in the cellar were not those of Cora Crippen. Researchers used genealogy to identify three living relatives of hers, so great nieces, by providing the mitochondrial DNA haplotype. Um, And researchers were able to compare their DNA with the DNA extracted from a microscope slide containing flesh that was taken from the torso that was 100 years old. And the original remains were also tested using a a highly sensitive way of testing the Y chromosome. And they suggested that the flesh sample that they'd found was a male sample, not a female sample of flesh. 
And they said that the scar found on the torso, which the original trial's prosecution argued was the same one that Cora was known to have, was incorrectly identified. Um, and because the scientists found hair follicles in the tissue, which should not be there, which actually was something that his defense did yeah. say in the trial. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And their research was published in two thousand in yeah, two thousand and eleven. But then that's been disputed as well because said, "Well, you're the only university in the world who uses this technology. We can't how check it. we can't really check it yeah. or trust it. So we don't really trust you." But then the guy said, "Well, these tests showed unequivocally that the remains were male." And they said that so traces of the hair found in the curlers are preserved in the Metropolitan Police's Crime Museum. Um, and another research said that they've been trying to get samples of it, but they weren't allowed to kind of test it. Um, so the DNA didn't match that of her great Family. nieces. Yeah. But <laughs> oh. I guess it's that question of, well, okay, was her family who she said her family was? Was she adopted? Was she... Did she? How did she fit into that family? I mean, is a question. She came from that Polish-Russian background that had yeah. gone to America, and she's working in musicals. Yeah. Mm. So you know, well, <laughs> did was that a matchup? And is is that concrete evidence? Is this technology good enough to say that? Yeah, it was a man, not a woman. But in December 2009, the UK's Criminal Cases Review Commission reviewed the case, and they said that the Court of Appeal wouldn't hear the case to pardon him posthumously. So there must be enough evidence to say that, yeah, he committed the crime. Okay. That's the story of Dr. Hawley Harvey Crippin. Wow. That is, I, I've heard of Crippin. I think most people have. It's a name yeah. that you think, well, Crippin the murderer. But I didn't really know the whole story. Really good case. Thank you ever so much for... Uh, no, you're welcome. I thought it was really interesting. That one. It is interesting. Yeah, as I say, I, I know the name Crippin. I thought I, I knew about the um, use of telegraph because I think it was the first time that yeah, it's the first time that of, anyone had been apprehended because um, uh, of telegraph using communicate yeah le- yeah electronic I suppose communications yeah yeah albeit Morse code <laughs> yeah yeah getting that really long message across. But uh, for him to get on a faster boat, to I know, yeah, to like beat him across the Atlantic, yeah, well, it must have been really fast. <laughs> well, I guess if he was going, if they were going from Belgium and yeah. he was going from Liverpool, he had a bit, he might have had a bit yeah, of a head might start. Have had a day's head start or something, yeah. <laughs> yeah. If they had got into the country, then they might have just gone free, I suppose, and uh, yeah, they'd have disappeared over there as well. I think it's a tricky one because I don't think there's enough evidence to say, yeah, he killed his wife. There's, n- there's not enough evidence to say that that body in the cellar was his wife. No. <laughs> uh, anyway, but the way that he acted yeah, does, are not the really actions guilty. of an innocent man, are they? Yeah, and, <laughs> you know, and dressing her up to look like a boy and, and all the rest yeah, of it. Yeah. Moving his mistress in the day after she disappears and all that stuff like that. That's not the actions of someone who thinks that his wife just popped over to America for you know, a trip because you wouldn't take her out, would you, wearing all your wife's clothes if you did to see her your wife's friends if you knew that your wife was gonna be back. Yeah, it's very odd. So now you may have convinced me he's guilty. <laughs> I, I I honestly don't know if I know myself. And then I guess it calls into question did his wife really die of a stroke, the first one? Or did he just get bored of her as well? Maybe. Yeah, we wouldn't get away with it these days. No. I am enlightened about Crippin, I think there's quite a lot of um, murders from that era that are really quite yeah. interesting. And and I suppose they are more interesting because of that era mystery about them. Yeah. More modern ones, yeah, you got you you can track 
people by use of credit card and phones and all the rest of it whereas in those days yeah no like you say no way of telling if that really was the person's body no no real way of identification Uh, not a great way of tracking down people either back then no so um people used to get away with an awful lot i think yeah definitely be really like if a murder like that happened today how different it would be treated because of the science basically that we've got now that can or you know she'd have been seen on cctv cameras or she would have disappeared and not been seen ever again you know if she got on the boat or a plane her passport would have been scanned wouldn't it and that would have that that would be the number one thing that you say well actually she can't have gone back to america because her passport hasn't been scanned anywhere and you could track her to work out where she was or you know if she'd taken a phone with her and you'd be able to test the dna on that body to work out if it was yeah, hers, yeah. or if it was a man or <laughs> there's just so much just so much that yeah we don't know about <laughs> just because of when it happened yes i think it's really interesting you're right i think the older cases maybe are a little bit more interesting and because they're also different aren't they I think mm. modern cases can sometimes get a bit samey with kind of how they happen and what the motive is and that sort of thing but I think the older ones are really interesting because they have got that air of mystery about them and you can really kind of think actually did this person do it yeah so whether or not he did it and the evidence is flaky because they didn't have the forensic technology to be able to pin it on him at least at least justice was dealt out pretty quick or yeah (laughs) that he wasn't just sat on the death row for no, years. it didn't take three years for it to come to trial or anything. It was uh, well, no, it was all done and dusted within. Yeah, next, uh, yep, guilty. Nine months, really, between her dying and um, her going missing and him being hung. That was it was nine months, really, wasn't it? Yeah. So, so you see, you got some pictures. Got some pictures, yes, and there is tons of stuff online, like uh, yeah, newspaper no, clippings, no and you can read the whole of the court transcript on oh, the wow. Old Bailey website, which is really interesting, actually. Um, so yeah, there is tons of stuff online, but yeah, I'll share some pictures so you can kind of see what it looked like. He was a funny-looking guy, um, and I think <laughs> that was one way they they caught him because they kind of described what he looked like, and because he was so distinctive, that's one way that they managed to kind of find him. Mm-hmm. So I guess you'll put those pictures onto our social pages yep i'll put them on our instagram which is dad and daughter do death and on our facebook just search for dad and daughter do death and if you want to get in touch with us you can do that by emailing dad and daughter do death at gmail.com and if you have enjoyed this please do um, give us a like give us a follow a download a subscribe whichever your podcast platform allows um, and leave us a a cheeky review if you fancy tell your friends tell your families yes and (laughs) uh, we'll be here next week (laughs) yeah we will so please join us next time when once again dad and daughter do death